I'll begin reading in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, and I'll read through John chapter 3, verse 21. Listen to the text. We've, we've spent a lot of time with the encounter of Jesus and Nicodemus, but pay attention to Jesus' continued words to Nicodemus as we get into verses 16 through 21. John chapter 2, verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said this to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Last Lord's Day, we began what studying and looking at what many consider to be the greatest verse in all the Bible, John chapter 3, verse 16. And one of the things that was important to lay the foundation of last week in looking at that is to understand what probably for many of us we, we have never understood. That John 3.16 is in the context of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. This is a continuation of everything that God has been, uh, in Christ, has been pouring out to Nicodemus about the need to be born again, not through anything Nicodemus can do, not through anything Nicodemus has done, but solely being born from above, born from God, and now John 3.16 is a part of being born again from God above. The title of the message we're looking at, this is kind of, if you will, part two of the message, The Glory of God in Salvation. 
the burden that God really stirred in my heart as I was preparing for these messages in John 3.16 is something that should be perfectly obvious to us, but it's not always. And that's this, that John 3.16 is about God. John 3.16 is about God. Now, it should be perfectly obvious to us because the very subject of the sentence is for God, subject, so loved, verb. This is about God. But many in our day have shifted in their thinking from about John 3.16, have shifted away from seeing this as a passage about the glory of God in salvation and have tried to use it as a proof text to preserve, if you will, the glory of man. To shift away from focusing upon God and His work and using it to preserve things like the free will of man. Focusing upon just the, well, it says clearly here, whosoever wills, almost protecting and preserving the glory of man. Sadly, emphasis has turned away from God himself to me. So what we're trying to do is to study this passage in accordance with the context in which we find it. Got Jesus' words to Nicodemus. You must be born again, Jesus says to Nicodemus. You must be born from above. There's nothing you can do, Nicodemus. There's nothing you have done. You must be born by God. By His Holy Spirit. You can go back and look at John chapter 3. The Holy Spirit must give birth through the the Word and through the water. And the Spirit blows like the wind. Where He will, when He will, however He wills. You can't predict it. You can't understand it. But this is how God saves. And John 3.16 is part of God's work of salvation in the soul of man. And in it, he gets all the glory. Last week, we considered just the first line, if you will, of John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Let me just read the text to us this morning. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Last week, we focused solely upon that first line, for God so loved the world. In this message entitled, The Glory of God in Salvation, the first thing we looked at is that the glory of God in salvation is seen in the greatness of His love. That was the entirety of last week's message. The glory of God in salvation is seen in the greatness of His love. Now, God's love, as we said last week, is not that warm, ooey-gooey feeling, emotional, oh, I love you so much. It is God's commitment to Himself, to His own glory. God's commitment for His glory to fulfill His plans and purposes in Jesus Christ. He is going to be faithful to it. And so the greatness of, or the glory of God is seen in the greatness of His love. And the greatness of God's love is seen first in who God is. All right, stay with me on this. The greatness of God's love is first to be seen in who He is. And so we spent quite a bit of time upon just that first first couple of words in John 3.16, for God. He's the subject of John 3.16. Contextually, 
That's what Jesus is telling to Nicodemus. It's not anything you've done, Nicodemus. Get yourself out of the way. The subject of being born again is God. Contextually, God is the subject. Grammatically, uh, God is the subject. Theologically, God is the subject of the new birth. And in order to understand the greatness and the glory of God, to understand the greatness of His love, we need to know when it says, for God, who is this God? This is going to set the parameters for understanding the glory of God in His love for sinners. It's one thing to acknowledge that God is transcendent in glory and beyond us, which is how we often do. Yes, He's great. He's he's out there. He's beyond us. He's bigger. But it's another thing to actually try to measure that greatness. And we can, in some ways, measure the greatness of God. We, we, We spent the bulk of our time last week thinking about this. We measure God's greatness in comparison to us. Who are we? Man is finite. God is what? Infinite. God is glorious. We spent time looking at uh, Isaiah chapter 40 and uh, Psalm chapter 8. And uh, we even referenced Job 38 through 42. Passages that exalt, all right, humans made in my image. Here's who you are. You're like ants. You're like grasshoppers. Now here's who I am. And these passages, they just, they reveal to us the the transcendent greatness of God in comparison to us. It's an eternal gap. And then also we saw that not only is man finite and God is infinite, but we also saw that finite man is sinful. But this glorious, infinite God is holy. He's righteous. He's pure. And so that, when you begin to think about for God so loved the world, don't just rush past God. Who is it who's loving the world? It's this God. Infinite, holy, righteous, just. No spot or blemish in Him. And in comparison to you, ants, grasshoppers, nobodies. We don't, did you acknowledge the ants this morning when you came in? What God would, of this greatness and glory, would acknowledge us? Now all of a sudden, John 3.16 is becoming massive. This God is the one who, what? God so loved the world? And that's the second thing we saw last week. The greatness of God's love is seen, one, in who He is, and number two, in the object of His love. The greatness of God's love is seen in the object of His love. Well, who does Jesus say He loves? God so loved the world. And we had to spend some time there and do some work. Because inevitably in our day today, when someone hears God so loves the world, immediately what comes to their mind is the globe and all the people in it. And see, it says here clearly, God loves everybody, everywhere, every time. And it would make sense if that's what John means. Except John talks about the world all throughout his gospel, and he never means that. In John's gospel, world has not a numeric quality, but an ethical quality. And you're going to see this. I mean, consistency demands that when we come to John 3.16, and it says, this great God so loved the world, that we cannot take it to mean he, he loves the people of the world, because he's going to say in just a few chapters down the road, he's going to tell his disciples, do not love the world. <laughs> in John 3.16, he loves the world, and then he's going to turn around and say, don't, don't love, if he means people, then we got a problem there. 
But if we understand, he, when John is, Jesus in John's gospel is using the word world to talk about a moral or ethical quality, he's not talking about the number of people, he's talking about how bad the world is. How bad it is. Then when Jesus tells his disciples, don't love the world, well that makes sense. That world that doesn't love God, that, is, that doesn't treasure God, that wants to live its own way rather than God's way. The world that doesn't trust God, that world that hates God, if you will. That world that doesn't treasure Jesus, that world that wants Jesus on a cross. Don't love that world. That makes sense to us, right? And consistency demands all throughout John's gospel. That's what he means when he means world now. God so loved the world, it, does, it is not an argument for God loves every single person who walks on the planet. That's a whole other discussion. The glory of God is that this infinite, holy, righteous, just God so loved this world that's in rebellion to Him. Who gets the glory here? He does. You have to shudder and tremble before this when you recognize that's what's being communicated here. Who's the one who gets the glory and salvation of this, in this world? It's God, because there's no reason that a God as, as glorious and transcendent and holy and pure and righteous at this should love a world that hates Him. Do you operate that way? To those who hate you? Probably not. This is a God-centered text. He's the one who's, who's, who we are trembling before. He's the one that we, we fall down on our faces. This shouldn't be. But what we saw last week, the glory of God in salvation, the glory of God in the new birth, because again, this is a continue. He's talking to Nicodemus here. The glory of God in the new birth is seen first in the greatness of His love, who He is, and the object of his love, a world that hates him. Oh God, we've repent of making John 3.16 about me. Here's my contribution to John 3.16. I'm the bad person. I'm the world. I'm the one who doesn't deserve any of this. There's the man, there's the man aspect of John 3.16. There's nothing to marvel or boast in there. We boast in God. That brings us this morning to the second point of this message. That the glory of God in salvation is seen not only in the greatness of His love, but secondly, the glory of God in salvation is seen in the greatness of His gift. The greatness of His love, and this morning now, the greatness of His gift. Here we see that God's love is not only measured by who God is. God's love is not only measured by the object of His love, but it reaches down into, it's measured by what His love does. Right? That's what this point is. This love of God, which is amazing, inexplicable, surprising, unexpected, makes no sense because of who He is and because of who the world is. This love of God, here in the second point, does something. And the greatness of His gift begins with the awesome truth, for God so loved the world that, what? He gave. 
Pause. Pause right there. How many of us know that God's love is not earned? It is given. Again, that may be something that sounds obvious to you. It was not obvious to Nicodemus. I'm trying to be very intentional, connect what Jesus is saying here to the context of what he's saying to Nicodemus. This idea of God's love, not something earned, but something given, was completely foreign to Nicodemus and to every other Pharisee and legalist in his day. The religion of the day, while very full, the religion of the day had turned into a religion of works. Their religion was based on externals. It was based upon... uh, God loves me because of what I've done. I've been a good person. My performance, demonstrating to others that I'm, I'm, I'm serious about God. Earning that love on the basis of our own performance. Going to church, reading the Bible. And we're prone to do the same thing. Now again, going to church and reading the Bible and doing good works and all those things are right things. But what does Jesus expose in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25? I'm looking at your heart. You can do all those things from a selfish heart. And all those who were following him and doing the right things and saying the right things like Nicodemus, what did Jesus say to Nicodemus? Nicodemus was the model religious man of the day. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? I know your heart. You must be born again. The temptation is to think that salvation is something earned. I return to a diagnostic question I posed to you a number of weeks ago. You remember that diagnostic question? That, uh, That your answer instantly reveals your own understanding of the gospel and of God's love. The diagnostic question is simply, how do you know that you're a Christian? Or we could frame it this way, persuade me that you're a Christian. And immediately how you respond will tell whether you think of the gospel in terms of God's love as something earned or God's love as something given. If I ask you, how do you know you're a Christian? And you begin to say, well, I, you need to go no further. God's love is something in your heart you believe is earned. If the response begins, how do you know you're a Christian? God, and then fill in the rest. Now that's an indication there that your understanding of the gospel is it's something given. It's not something I do. It's something God does. Something he graciously, surprisingly unexpectedly, amazingly does. But we are prone to be more like Nicodemus. And you're going to have to search your heart as I have to do mine. Are we prone to think that God's love is something we earn by being good, by not sinning, by being moral, by being religious, by acting Christianly, by posting on social media the the picture we want people to see of us? God's love is not earned. It's given. God is not 
interested in your good works. Now, we've been saved unto good works, so don't hear me saying they're unimportant. But God is not interested in your self-righteousness. <laughs> he is perfectly 100% righteous. What exactly is he supposed to be proud of you when you bring your best works that are not 100% righteous? I mean, just the logic of it. Why would, why would God love you on the basis of your good works anyway? He's perfect. And he demands you to be perfect as he is perfect. It's a mockery of his righteousness to try to earn God's love. Can you be as righteous as he? Can you meet his standards? No. God is interested not in your or my self-righteousness. What he's interested in, we might go so far as to say what he's engrossed in, is himself. Is his glory. Is demonstrating to the world his love that should not be. That's what he's engrossed in. And that's why these followers of Jesus who are following him and saying all the right things, yet Jesus did not give himself to them. Why? Because he's engrossed in what the Father's engrossed in, a heart that is captivated by the Father. That's what the Father's all about. And therefore, for the Father's glory... To a world that hates him, he gave. He gets the glory. He gets the renown. The subject is God. This God who is infinite in time, infinite in perfect knowledge, infinite in space, infinite in power, infinite in holiness, independent and self-sustaining and needs nothing from you, nothing from me. He gave to you. Just stop and, and try to process that. He didn't need anything from us. There is nothing even by giving to us that we can do for Him that He couldn't already do for Himself. Yet this God to us gave. He gets the glory. Oh, and it's not over yet. The greatness, the glory of God seen in the greatness of His gift is not just that He gave. It's what He gave to this world. For God so loved the world that He gave to this rebellious, sinful, God-hating, want to murder God if we could, world. His only Son. He gave the most precious, most important, most significant, most valuable, most sacrificial thing He could possibly give. Himself in the form of His Son, Jesus Christ. Christ is the gift to a fallen world that doesn't want Him 
Christ is the gift from the Father, from God. Let me pause there for a moment. Oftentimes we focus on, and rightly so, different gifts of God. For instance, we, we've been emphasizing in recent weeks from Ephesians 2 that faith is a gift of God, right? Not of works, lest any man can boast. We focus upon the gift of faith. And then Ephesians 2 goes on to say, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that it's a gift of God. We can talk about the gift of grace. The gift of faith, the gift of grace, the gift of salvation. All of those are right phrases and right gifts of God. But, but, don't mistake this. Christ is the gift from the Father. Apart from Christ, there can be no gift of faith. Apart from Christ, there can be no gift of grace. Apart from Christ, there can be no gift of salvation. Do you hear the distinction we're making here? There are many myriads of gifts, good gifts that the Father gives to His children. But they all are connected to one gift, the gift, Jesus Christ. Christ makes faith, faith possible. Christ makes grace possible. Christ makes salvation possible. Because it's Christ who came as the God-man and, the, and put on flesh. It's Christ who lived the life that this world that's in rebellion to God was supposed to live. The world that hates God was made to love God. The world that hates God and despises God was made to obey God, to obey His law. But we have it. God sent His Son to do that for us. As a representative human being to come and do what we were made to do. It's Christ then who not only lived the life we were supposed to live, but also went to the cross and died. Wait a minute, God. In a, wor in a, a world that you claim to love, every fiber of the being of the cosmos hates you. You're going to kill your son, not the world. What's going on there? It's the glory of God. He puts upon His Son the sin, the guilt of those that He intends to save out of the world upon Jesus Christ. And Christ takes on the wrath of God. Not the deserving party. Christ does. Christ takes on the wrath of God, so much so that God's wrath, which is infinite, infinite meaning what? There's no end to it. Christ took it all. That is a contradiction, isn't it? Something that has no end, Christ took it all, that speaks to the, the glory of God and the wonder of this gift of Christ, that He took the fullness of God's never-ending wrath for sin. For those He came to save, Christ took it upon Himself. And it's Christ's death upon the cross that appeases the Father's wrath. So much so that Paul can say in Romans 8, therefore there is now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. So who gets the glory there? God does. If there's no condemnation, there's nothing that those in the world who've been saved have done. God gets the glory. Christ gets the glory. And it's Christ whose death on the cross brings about the forgiveness of sins. It's Christ resurrected from the grave that brings victory over death and sin and the world and Satan. If you're able to battle temptation and find victory over it, do not rejoice in yourself. The victory to overcome temptation was won by Christ upon the resurrection. When He came out of the grave, now death no longer had a sting. Temptation was no longer undefeated. Christ Himself won the victory. And we are given His power, His righteousness to defeat these things. Who gets the glory? God does. Christ does. And it's Christ who's at the Father's right hand now sovereignly. If there's no giving by the Father of the Son, well, then there's absolutely no faith, no grace, no salvation, no victory over temptation, no joy, no happiness, no peace. There's none of that. Not in the truest sense of it. Those things only come through Christ. Do you see the glory of God and salvation? Do you see the glory of the Father's love and giving the Son? Without the Son, church, we have nothing. Nothing. And just to drive it home further, we're told that the Son that He gave in John 3.16 is His only Son. The idea here is that his unique, one-of-a-kind son. This is not like any other son who's ever been. The son that God gave, Jesus Christ, is unique in glory and grandeur and majesty and holiness and righteousness and purity and perfection. How does that glorify God? Here's the punch. This one-of-a-kind son, never been one like him, can never be one like him. This one son, this is it. One-of-a-kind, unique, the face of God in this one. He gave to the world. This is why you've got to have a right understanding of the world in John's Gospel. He gave to people who are, to use the language of Scripture, outcasts, dogs, scum of the earth, pigs, swine, sinners, idolaters, God-haters. The glory of God in what He gave, the gift of His Son, His only Son, to people who don't deserve something so amazingly, wonderfully perfect. 
we can talk about in general terms. This is how much God loves you. He gave his son. And that's right. That's what the text says. But it's only when you stop and pause and think about who this God is, who the world is, the gift given to this world, who this one is, unique, one of a kind. God's, and he gave it to this world of people who hate him. Only then can you really begin to understand the measure of God's love. We can talk about it. But the intention here is for Nicodemus and for you and I to understand it. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Covenant Life Church, if you've never, ever seen Christ in this way, if you've never experienced the work of God and the soul of man, turning your heart and your affections to God, you must be born again from God, from above, not anything you do. Him, and here's His love. He's provided Jesus. And oh, the weight of love. This is exactly what was promised in Genesis 3.15. God promised a seed of the woman, a Messiah to come, Eve's seed. And Christ is that one. But Nicodemus, Nicodemus didn't want, let me frame it this way, Nicodemus wanted to demonstrate to God his love on his terms. He wanted to demonstrate his love to God on his terms. But God says, this world that I've made is for my glory, not yours, Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you've brought in all your good works. You've been brought in all your religion. You've brought all your religious background. You've brought all this uh, to your own glory. Go back to Genesis 3, 1 through 15. Jesus just dismantles it. I won't have it. My father won't have it. You <laughs> peon. Before the foundation of the world. My father, we don't need any of this stuff. And this sure isn't going to win you the favor of God. Holy God. First order of business, repent of all this, Nicodemus. What must I do? John 3.16. Nothing. For God did it. The Son of Man, go back to verse 15, must be lifted up as the serpent in the wilderness, right? For God did this. God is the one in love who's provided this Son to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And God won't have it any other way. His glory is at stake. God's not going to have you coming and competing for glory. He gets it all. Listen to some of these familiar passages of Scripture. Is this not what these say? And maybe we need to ask God to open our eyes to see the glory of God in them rather than our own worth, which is what Nicodemus is trying to argue for. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while you, we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners. God demonstrates His love. Christ died for us. Who gets the glory there? While we were sinners, there's nothing we're contributing except the sin. He gets the glory. Ephesians 2, 4, But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of his great love for which he loved us. Now, here's the key. With his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Who gets the glory there? God does. Christ does. The only thing we contribute there is our dead in transgressions. 1 John 4.10, John writes, In this is love, not that we love God. That's John 3.16. <laughs> this is love, not that we love God, but what? That He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Who gets the glory there? It's obvious, isn't it? Here is love, not that we love God. <laughs> There's no glory for us in that. All the glory goes to God. He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Titus 3, 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration, that's Genesis, or excuse me, John 3, 1 through 15, the washing of regeneration, that's what Jesus has already said to Nicodemus, must be born by the word and the washing of water, that's what he's talking about here, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. All of those texts, all of them, Reveal the glory of God and the salvation of the soul and the greatness of his gift. In spite of us. In spite of us. He gave to this world a son, his son, to die a sinner's death so that his people might live. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus in John 3, 16, Nicodemus, do you understand yet? You can't accomplish this. You can't do any of this. I and my Father, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, I and my Father, this is what we are doing for the world. This is what we are doing so that a soul can be born from above. And that the nations will glorify us. You can't do it, Nicodemus. The new birth is a divine work of God alone. What do you have, Nicodemus? Your righteousness is filthy to me. Your religion is, how many times has he said, how do you not know? It's ignorant. You can't bring to me anything, any contribution whatsoever. And nor would we allow it, because our glory we will not share with another Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you must be born again from above by God, who out of his love for this world, which Nicodemus will spend the rest of eternity trying to understand that, has given a gift. The gift, his son. Nicodemus, 
look off everything else. Look off everything you've done, your heritage, your background, your training, your teaching, your experiences, your morality, your good works. Get your eyes off of you. Get your eyes off of your repentance. Get your eyes off of the the right things you've said. And you look at God's gift. Verse 15, the one raised up. You must look to the Son of Man who's lifted up on the cross. And Nicodemus, you must believe. All you do is believe. You do nothing. God in kindness, mercy, and grace has done everything. That's, there's the diagnostic question, isn't it? How do you know you're a Christian? Well, I. You're not looking. You're looking at yourself. How do you know you're a Christian? God. God did this. And God has produced out of this in me the glory of God and salvation. John 3.16 is about God. We've seen the glory of God in salvation is seen in the greatness of His love. Secondly, in the greatness of his gift. Very quickly. Thirdly, the glory of God in salvation is seen in the greatness of the offer. The greatness of the offer. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever, what? Believes. There's nothing to do. Just believe. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Listen, we have taken this passage and made it out to, it says right there, whoever believes. So that means anyone, anytime. Yes, there is a universal offer of the gospel to all people everywhere. In the common grace of God, there is a call for all people everywhere to repent. But in this passage here, Jesus is dealing with something in Nicodemus' heart. That's why the passage begins in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Jesus knows what's in the heart of man. Here's what's in the heart. You've got to think about the context here. When Jesus says in 3.16, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, you've got to understand Nicodemus would have been baffled at the very least and maybe even angry. What is Nicodemus's background? His nationality. Jew. So anyone who's not a Jew is a what? Gentile. What's the relationship between the Jews and Gentiles? Are they friends? Jews don't really think highly of Gentiles at all. In fact, the thought of a Jew is that you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That's why in order for someone to be a convert into the kingdom of God, they had to turn from their Gentilism and and become a Jew, right? They had to go through a series of processes. It was the Jews did not think kindly on Gentiles whatsoever. Nicodemus can't fathom that there's a world out there outside of the Jewish world that's capable 
of having a place in the kingdom of God. Because his thinking is what? You've got to be Jewish. But what Nicodemus goes back to what Jesus said, have you not taught the scripture and you don't know? What Nicodemus missed is things like Isaiah 49, 6, where concerning the coming of the Lord, Isaiah prophesied, I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That the work of God in salvation for his glory would not be confined to the Jews. That for his glory, God was going to do something incredibly unexpected, which he's been doing all along. That's kind of his glory. That's his thing, if you will. He does what no mind could ever fathom. Salvation will come to the Gentiles. That some way, somehow, God would make a way for even those non-Jews, non-Nicodemus types, non-law keepers, non-religious people, non-Sabbath keepers, who they all think that's the way you earn entry into the kingdom of God, right? Which is what Jesus is deconstructing in him. That there's a way for those to be grafted into the kingdom of God by grace, by adoption. Now, they don't know what that way is, but Isaiah 49.6 is the hint that, oh, it's bigger than you could possibly imagine, Jews, for the glory of God. And so, watch this. The Apostle Paul actually picks up on this prophecy of Isaiah in 49.6. In Acts 13, when he's going and ministering to the Jews, and the Jews are just hostile to Christ. They're hostile to the message of the gospel. They're hostile to John 3.16, that this is God's way of salvation for His glory. He's done it all. Repent of all your good works. Repent of all your religion. Repent of your Jewishness. Repent of all this stuff. And believe. Well, the Jews weren't interested in that. That's not how they found their place. So in Acts 13, Paul says this. Fine, that's my word. We are turning to the Gentiles. Or turning away, fine. It's kind of that principle Jesus told his disciples, if they won't receive, wipe your feet off. Go to the next. Acts 13, 46. We're turning to the Gentiles for the Lord has commanded us. Isaiah 49, 6. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And then we're told when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, as many appointed by who? By God. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Acts 13, 46 through 48. And what we've seen throughout the church age, the time since the ascension of Christ until his return, is that the people of God have, out of their passion for God, out of their passion for the glory of God, gone to the ends of the earth, to proclaim exactly what this message is about, the glory of God and salvation. The true church, who's been born from above, salvation is of the Lord, by His grace and for His glory, because of the gift He gave us, the undeserved gift, Jesus Christ, to a world who didn't want Him. He's provided in Christ everything, and by looking unto Him, the Spirit changed my heart, transformed my heart 
brought me to the end of myself. Anything I had ever done, anything I'd ever said or tried to do and found Christ has done it all. For the glory of God the Father, He gets the glory. Evangelism and missions is not about, and I, I can only pray God will help you to understand what I mean when I say this. Evangelism and missions is not about as many people as possible, as quickly as possible, to pray and repent. That is not what John 3.16 is about. True biblical evangelism and missions is about what? The glory of God. Now John 3.16 tells us one of the ways God glorifies himself. John chapter 3 as a whole in the new birth through his son Jesus. But that's a work of God. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. That's the effect of the risen and crucified and risen exalted up on the cross Christ, crucified and, and uh, resurrected from the grave. That's the work of God in the soul. Evangelism in our day has become more about, let me think of what method I can use to try to get this person to say the right things, to do the right things. Well, beloved, Nicodemus had said the right things and did the right things. And what did Jesus say to him? You must be born again, my way. I'm the one who descended from heaven, right? Genesis, or excuse me, John chapter 3. I'm the one who is with the Father. I, I know what this is. We live in a day today, good intentioned. We want to see people say the right things and do the right things, and we feel better about it. Jesus says on that day, many are going to say to me, I said the right things, I did the right things, and Jesus is going to say, what? Depart from me, I never knew you. We're having to connect some dots here, but we are fools, fools to try to be giving people a hope in something that is, is part truth, but it's not necessarily the fullness of God's truth. And with regard to our methods, we are fools to try to give people anything other than the glory of God. What is it that made Isaiah come undone in Isaiah 6? It was God. What was it that made the Apostle Paul, who was as hostile to Jesus Christ as any man who had ever lived, what was it that made him come undone on the road to Damascus? It was the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is it that made Peter repent of all else and follow Jesus? It was the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in that boat when the boat was sinking. Get away from me. Go away, man. A God-centered understanding of evangelism and missions has been oftentimes created this straw man. Well, you don't really love people. You don't really care about people. You don't really see about seeing souls saved. 
care about the glory of God and genuine salvation. The work of God in the soul of man. Whosoever believes in Him won't perish and have eternal life. Not the one who believes and also holds on to all these other things they do. The one who forsakes everything else because they've seen the glory of God. What, what will I bring to this one? What could I possibly give to this one? Nothing. For his glory he gave to you. His only son. Who lived and died and rose again. To appease his wrath. And to make you right with him. Look to Jesus. That's biblical evangelism. It begins with God. Showing the glory of God. And until a soul sees the glory of God, they won't see themselves rightly. And if they don't see themselves rightly out of the flow of the glory of God, they won't see their need for Christ. Christ may be something that will bring them a better marriage or better finances, better lot in life, but won't be about the glory of God. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, your hope is in who God is and what God has done for his glory. Nicodemus, quit looking at yourself. Quit looking at what you've done. Quit listening to what you've said. All of the right things you've said. Nicodemus, look at the gift of God for the glory of God. Believe in Him. Believe in Him. And whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. And what is eternal life? We saw it in John 17 this morning. Not living forever and ever and ever and ever. I mean, that's part of it. Knowing God and knowing Jesus. That's the glory of God. Nicodemus, stop looking at yourself. Look at Jesus. Coming to Life Church. Stop looking at yourself and look into Jesus and believe. What a God we have in John 3.16. It's not about us. <laughs> it's not about our free will. That's another discussion for another day. We can talk about That's not even the verse that comes into that discussion. This verse is about God. The greatness of His person. The greatness of His love. The greatness of His gift. The greatness of His offer. So what do we do? Look to Jesus. Look to his gift. Some in this room, maybe for the first time. Others, if by grace your eyes have been opened to see and to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you keep looking unto Jesus. Day after day, somebody prayed in the prayer meeting this morning. From the moment our eyes wake up, keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus. The right prayer to pray. That is the Christian life for the glory of God.